I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You're listening to Muses. My name is Lynx, and I hope you enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome again to another Muses She Will Rock You crossover. I so love doing these with you guys. Thank you for coming on again and doing this with me. We cover so many awesome different types of women that I don't think we would normally cover. So Mm -hmm. it's always so exciting. And I've gotten so many great comments on these episodes with you. So I know our listeners are going to be like super pumped that this is happening again as well. Totally. We always love a good Muses of Rock You crossover. Yes. They're probably like one of our favorite crossovers. Yes. We always pick a good theme each time too. And this, I guess, is more like soul going into funk Mm -hmm. type of music. And I don't think we have covered that that much like Muses wise. So uh, yeah, this is exciting. Yeah, it's the the shorter ones that wouldn't make a whole episode. Like I was saying before we hit record, I only have like two pages of notes. I couldn't make a 30 minute episode even with this myself. So yeah, and these women still deserve their story told and have such a important influence, even if their story isn't, you know, a full length episode. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm so happy that we get to we found a way to cover them and found a way that we can all hang out. I love seeing you guys on Zoom as well and everything. I know. I wish we were closer and we're in two countries away, but, but you know, know, that's the greatness of Zoom. <laughs> well, maybe next year it can do like a road trip or something will happen. Yes. After COVID and everything, I'm like, just get me anywhere. I want to visit everyone and do everything in person. So 
Yeah, oh my gosh. Yes. Please come to Virginia. We'll yes. do the, we'll do the Nelson 151 beer tour. Yes. Amazing. And record in person for once. My goodness. That would be yes. Fun. yes. We'll have to think of some good women for that episode. So, like, we'll yeah. start planning now. Yeah. Who's going to go first? Leah? Me. Because my topic, which is Mavis Staples, got her start earliest. So we'll start at the beginning. Uh, so Mavis Staples was born in Chicago on July 10th, 1939. And she actually started her career at age 11. Wow. Mm. Her family had a singing group called, creatively, the Staples Singers. And she did it because it was, you know, the family thing and she wanted to do it. But once she graduated high school, she really wanted to go to school to become a nurse. And her dad was like, no, you're going to be in the family group. And Hmm. so her dream had to change a little bit to be in this family group. But I think she made the right choice. She definitely made the right choice. But usually that conversation goes the other direction. Like, hey mom, I'm going to be a singer. No, you're going to be a nurse. Like no. it's usually not a Uno reverse situation. Not when it's your family group headed by your father. True. So the group is made up of Pops Staples. His real name's Roebuck, but everyone called him Pops. And he played guitar. And Mavis and her siblings, Cleotha, Yvonne, Purvis were the rest of the group. And I don't honestly know if their mother was in the group or not. She's not mentioned anywhere. So who knows? Uh, and they quickly learned the nickname God's Greatest Hitmakers, which nice. I think is adorable. They did a lot of gospel, a lot of soul music, and they actually got their first professional contract two years into it in 1950. But they got bounced around so bad from label to label to label, even throughout their entire career. So like in the first two years, they were on United Records. Sorry, the first four years, United Records, VJ Records, Checker Records, Riverside Records, and then they settled on Epic Records for a little while, which is a lot of bouncing around. Yeah. Uh, once they were on Epic, they released some songs and started to really get like, a lot of notoriety, specifically Uncloudy Day and their version of Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And a fun fact about Uncloudy Day is this was an early influence on Bob Dylan. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, he... <laughs> In a 2015 interview, he said that song was the most mysterious thing I'd ever heard. I would think about them even at my school desk. Mavis looked to be about the same age as me in her picture on the cover and her singing just knocked me out. Mavis was a great singer, deep and mysterious. Even at that young age, I felt that life itself was a mystery. Oh, mm. I love that. That's such That's a good a great quote. quote. Oh. Bobby Dylan always yeah. bringing out the good quotes. Deep thinking at age, what, like 11, 12? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a philosopher before his time yes <laughs> young young philosopher in an interview in 2008 so bob dylan and mavis staples were really good friends throughout most of their lives they went in very similar circles and she let it slip to npr in an interview for wait wait don't tell me that they were such good friends that bob dylan actually asked her father if he could marry mavis what but mavis turned him down no way <laughs> That would have been like a powerhouse pairing. Right? That's crazy. Do you know like what era he wanted this to happen in? Like I like the 60s, the 70s? Oh, I'd be so curious to know. I did not. I couldn't find the actual NPR interview to listen, but um I feel like it was somewhere in the civil rights era. Yeah. During some marches. So makes sense. I think that would have been cool, but she ended up yeah. not marrying him, which is sad. Uh, So while they're on Epic, they did a run of albums, including one that they recorded live in a church performance called Freedom Highway. 
And this title track actually became one of the like defining songs of the civil rights era. In 1968, they moved to Stax Records, which is kind of where they would live for the rest of their career. And they had a huge hit, well, huge in, in their career called Heavy Makes You Happy in 1971. And that same year, they also released a recording of Respect Yourself, which peaked at number two on the R&B charts and number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100, which is crazy. Because yeah. honestly, I had never heard of the Staple Singers until really Mavis Research. <laughs> Unfortunately, Stax goes bankrupt and they have to move to Kurtom Records and their career kind of fizzles after this. They do produce a couple more albums. They get another number one pop hit with Let's Do It Again. And they collaborate with the band for their film on The Last Waltz, performing on the song called The Wait. And then nothing else really happens with the Staple Singers. Their career fizzles. They do some like minor hits. And Mavis ends up breaking out in her own solo career. So before we talk about Mavis's career, just some like tying up the loose ends. Unfortunately, Pop Staples did pass away of complications from a concussion in 2000, which really affected Mavis. And we'll see that she does some work to like celebrate his life later in her career. Um, and there actually is a documentary film called Mavis that tells the story of basically Mavis's entire life through the Staple Singers and afterwards. Um, and the Staple Singers were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999 and the Gospel Music Hall of Fame in 2018. Hmm. So like I said, Mavis, she breaks off in her own solo career before her father's death, but she really blossomed after her father's death, as we'll see. By the mid-1960s, the Staple Singers and Pops were really, really close with Martin Luther King Jr. and started to like provide the soundtrack, basically, for these civil rights marches and the entire movement. Their songs, such as Long Walk to D.C. and When Will We Be Paid, brought a huge number of younger people into the circles um, yeah. and really just like became those marching anthems. Uh, Mavis made her first solo career while they were at Epic Records, and she only released one single off of that album. It was called Crying in the Chapel, and like it never got a lot of attention. It kind of got swept under the rug. They did re-release it in 2014, I think, when she had her career had taken off, and they did a lot better that, that mm -hmm. go-around. She wouldn't release her first solo album until 1969, and her albums in this, like that album, her albums in the 60s and 70s, really didn't do well she got kind of experimental and away from her her blues r&b gospel roots and experimented with disco and electro pop and like the public was just not vibing with it i feel yeah. like so many people at that era was like forced into that because it was like something new hot like you gotta right and it didn't work for anybody no disco no. was like this powerhouse of like it basically took all of your favorite artists and said, you will play this now. And you're like, oh, okay, fine, fine, fine. And it's just like, it only lasted for like, what, four years? Yeah. Four or five yeah. years. Yeah. Disco got so out of hand that I have a Sesame Street disco album from my grandparents' collection. Like, that's that a thing that someone decided needed to exist. <laughs> yeah. And even like rock and rollers, you know, like Blondie, Rolling Stones, you know, had mm -hmm. their like disco-esque numbers as well. Like everyone felt the need yeah. to do it. The Grateful Dead also had a disco <laughs> album. Fun fact. As we learned. Down the street. <laughs> it's actually not bad. But I did it not is, know that. Yes. Yeah. It's basically just like very like 
bass heavy groove beats but you know damn everybody had to get in on it yeah wow. we should do our next episode is disco yes disco? Okay. yes <laughs> calling it now i'm here for this because we've never we've never done a disco artist like specifically on our yeah on our me show. neither that'd be okay. fun you guys heard it here first all right so all throughout the 80s and 90s she just really can't get her feet underneath her to get her own solo career taken off and by this time the staple singer's career has fizzled so like what's a girl to do uh she just continues making music which i totally respect she never once let the critics or sales tell her what to do other than the disco album maybe i don't know what the thought process was there and in 2004 things change a little bit for her she does an album called have a little faith which is a tribute to her father because at this point he has been passed for four years she is influenced by him on this album musically parentally and spiritually which uh, you know critics always make notes of and they're like it permeates every aspect of this album this is her like crowning jewel in her career and it even includes her own rendition of will the circle be unbroken which was one of their first hits and her father's favorite hymn Um, and she also wrote a song for the album called pop's recipe which incorporates all these like biographical details and things that he would say to her and i love that so much and this album did really 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 well i mean compared to the rest of her career and it won the wc handy award for best blues album best soul album that year and she specifically received an award for best female soul blues artist in 2005 because of this album damn good for mavis and Mm -hmm. she's just kept chunking out music her entire career she's 83 now and she's still making music she just released an album on right before her 80th birthday her voice has been sampled by some of the biggest artists ever including salt and pepper ice cube Ludacris, hosier she worked with prince on an album Mm. she's recorded with everyone from bob dylan to the band ray charles nona hendrix george jones natalie merchant and peebles and one thing that we talk a lot about on our show is that you don't have to make your best music in your teens and 20s because you're allowed mm-hmm. to get better with age and have some life experience. And this is something that she does. She's released albums in her 70s that Pitchfork, which we know Pitchfork is not the nicest when it comes to music reviews, went on to rave about. They said her voice has only gained texture and power over the years and it provides comfort to a highest power. Sorry, she's 82, not 83. She's still writing songs and delivering messages about hope and justice. She wrote this, like, I guess I'm guessing she wrote it. Maybe her team wrote it. This piece on her website that talked about her most recent release. And in it, she says, I'm the messenger. That's my job. It has been for my whole life. And I can't just give up while the struggle is still alive. We've got more work to do. So I'm going to keep on getting stronger and delivering my message every single day. I sing because I want to leave people better than I found them. Mm-hmm. I want them to walk away with a positive message on their hearts, feeling stronger than they felt before. I'm singing to myself for those same reasons too. Love her. Aww, love love her. I have gotten to see her perform live before and she is unbelievable. And like you said, like, especially, you know, her age and she's still got like such a powerful voice and presence on stage. And I think Mm -hmm. she's actually coming back to one of the music venues that I work at next year. So she's still fantastic. Yeah. Still touring and everything. She's a very spry 82 year old. Crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) 
And like you were saying how you can get better with age. That's not something like that should be praised. I also feel like she's a good example of, I feel like I really got to know her through all the people that she has worked with Mm -hmm. and like those collaborations. And I feel like people, you know, also shouldn't look down on people for like, maybe their solo work wasn't their biggest numbers, but what they do with other artists is so good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she's such a great example of that yeah you can still make Absolutely. great things collaborating like it doesn't have to be a solo endeavor yeah and clearly so many people were influenced by her and want to collaborate her for a reason yeah yeah, yeah. I, I do want to close this paragraph right from her website because it summarizes her in like the most distinct best possible way uh, hailed by NPR as one of America's defining voices of freedom and peace, Staples is the once-in-a-generation artist whose impact on music and culture will be difficult to overstate. She's both a blues and rock and roll Hall of Famer, a civil rights icon, a Grammy Award winner, a chart-topping soul gospel R&B pioneer, a National Arts Lifetime Achievement recipient, a Kennedy Center honoree, and she's marched with Dr. Martin, mm. Martin Luther King Jr., performed at JFK's inauguration, and sang in Barack Obama's White House. She's like a walking history book. Seriously. She's like life. She has exactly. She has lived life, and she did. She lived with purpose. Yes, it's rare to find people that really live with purpose like that. Yeah. Yes. My God, what a life! What a career! That was great. Absolutely. It's unfortunately really hard to find information on her, which is more reason to put her in the podcast. Um, But there's like, other than that one documentary, there's not a lot about her, which is really unfortunate. She should write a book. Unfortunate. She should. Oh yeah. Maybe I one could go day. for a good memoir from her. Yes. Uh, especially knowing all the people that she knew and met and encountered. and mm-hmm. uh, Well, fingers crossed one day. She's still out there touring and everything. She's got a book in her. Definitely. She may have written it and it might just be saving it. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, Mavis. <laughs> if you're listening, we want a book. <laughs> you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. All right, what do we got next? I think it's my turn. And it's interesting, these two artists, they have some similarity, which you'll hear as I go through my outline, but we're talking about Etta James. 
I would consider her, and we sometimes mention this on Shio Raku, she's a legacy artist, if you will, um, which is a very prestigious title. It's also a polite way of saying there's a lot to cover in a short time span. So we're also going to give you, this is also a Shio Raku phrase, the Taco Bell drive through version. <laughs> newly coined phrase. <laughs> yes, a newly coined phrase. It will be on a t-shirt, I'm sure, at one point. But um, basically, nonetheless, I hope this fulfills your Etta James appetite for just a little bit before you got to go back for more. I am going to put a little bit of a trigger warning in here. There's talk about drug addiction and abuse. So just that you're all aware of that, but let's go ahead and get into it. So Jamesetta Hawkins was born in Los Angeles on January 25th, 1938. I don't know why I'm putting this in here, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. For some reason, the date, January 25th, always sticks out to me when I see it. And I thought it was because my grandmother was born that day, but that's incorrect. It's because in Balto, that's the date on the statue. <laughs> so I just wanted to let you all know how my, <laughs> how my brain works. That's incredible. I'm just throwing that in there. But anyway, let us continue. Um, <laughs> her mom... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't, it's because I'm hopped up on a bunch of pain meds right now. So <laughs> yeah, that's why sure. Yeah, I can't, I'm going to apologize now for any random out of the world tangents. I just finished Grateful Dead. So they probably still have an influence on me a little bit here. The acid um, test. The acid test. Yes. So anyway, her mom was 14 at the time she gave birth to her. Um, she never knew her dad, but it's suspected it was a pool player by the name of Minnesota Fats. At a young age, she was often left alone in an apartment, which led to her like going to different foster homes. The ones that I believe were the longest she was with, one was named Sarge and one was named Mama Lou. At age five, she was hailed as a gospel prodigy and was immediately ushered into singing lessons with uh, James Earl Hines, which I think was a director of a church. But we do not like this, James. We like the Edda, but we do not like James Hines. We do not like him because he was abusive to Edda. For example, he wanted her to sing from her gut. So instead of helping her achieve that like a normal person, he would actually punch her in the chest to get her to sing from her gut. It's not even effective. No, it's not. <laughs> and this resulted in like a permanent impact to her voice. Oh, my I can God. imagine. Like, so she always had a stronger voice than other kids around her because of this. Wow. And then also Sarge wasn't a pretty pitcher either. He was also abusive. So he would like invite his friends over for poker. He would get drunk and then he'd like go upstairs at late hours at night and like physically abuse her to like come downstairs and sing for his stupid friends. Um, so this left like a lot of, for her, a lot of difficulties singing on demands, a lot of trauma, just a lot of trauma throughout her childhood. Dang. Oh my God. That's yeah. Wow. Oh, it's, it's so sad. After Mama Lou died, her mom kind of swept in and grabbed her and they moved to um, north of San Francisco. I can't speak like much about her mom, mainly because there's just not a lot out there other than what we've discussed, but she was, you know, did encourage her singing career 
And Etta James once said, my mama always told me, even if a song has been done a thousand times, you can still bring something of your own to it. I'd like to think I did that. We're going to come back to that quote because I see it as very prophetic of her career. Um, But while she's in San Francisco, and by this point, she's about 13 years old, she starts developing an interest in doo-wop. And she forms a group called The Peaches, which was based off her nickname. Love it. Cute. Yeah, it's super cute. And at age 14, the famed band leader, Johnny Otis, would discover Etta James, who sold James Seta at this point. There's different takes of how this story occurred. Otis said Etta found his hotel room and begged that he audition her. If you know anything about Hollywood, this is probably embellished to the ninth degree. Another version of the story was Otis saw her and the Peaches uh, performing at a nightclub and he wanted to basically have them come perform a couple songs for them. He helped them get started to make music in the business and was instrumental and taking her name from Jim Setta and flipping it to mm. Etta James. Yeah, which I think was cool. Mm-hmm. Her first big hit was a song called The Wallflower. It was originally called Roll With Me, Harry. But because people in the 50s were the way they were, <laughs> the word roll to them is an innuendo for sex. Everything's an innuendo to sex for the people of the 50s. I, I hate to tell you. It really it's is. It's true. So instead, it got changed to the wallflower, parentheses, dance with me, Harry. Very emo of them. Very 2000s, if you will. If that's going to take a while to scroll past the iPod. That's but, you know, it works, I guess. But the song did pretty well upon its release. It reached number one on the Hot Rhythm and Blues charts. However, a singer by the name of Georgia Gibbs covered the song shortly after, and it went number one on the Billboard 100. And needless to say, Etta was pissed, and I would be too. This is a tale as old as time of the 50s and 60s. But shortly after that hit, she would um, go solo. She'd actually meet Harvey Fuqua from the Moonglows, and they are... We covered Harvey a little bit in the Marvin Gaye episode. So if you want to learn a little bit about that, you listen to Marvin Gaye. But they would do some duets together. I think they also dated at some point as well. In 1960, she she signed to Chess Records, which she remained with for a pretty damn long time. I think it was like 17 years or something like that. Um, it was under Chess that she would release some of her biggest hitters, such as I'd Rather Go Blind, Tell Mama, Something's got a hold of me. But one song that we have to talk about is At Last. Yes. You know it. Your yep. parents dance to it. Your grandparents <laughs> dance to it. Such a momental song just embedded like in the fabric of classic jazz and R&B songs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it's just such a damn good song. It still holds up. It does. Yeah. It's a perfect song, truly. Yeah. And the way yeah. she sings it, especially. Oh. Oh yeah, 100%. But fun fact, this song was actually a cover. Oh. So remember that quote where she said, her mom said, you can always take something, you know, old and make it new essentially. Mm-hmm. So like, Etta not only like reinvented this song, she made it her song. 
like it's kind of like with Nine Inch Nails, the song Hurt, and then Johnny Cash comes in. And like mm-hmm. Trent Reznor said, this is his song. Yeah. Like, it's not even my song anymore. It's his song. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, when you get to that level where you perfect a song and the, how it should sound, that's how I feel about this song. Yeah. So she's at the height of her career. That song just pretty much starts blowing out the water. But then we come to 1965. And so right after 1965, she starts to really like get diminished a little bit. And it's because of those damn Brits and their <laughs> British invasion. Uh, yes. Damn you, Beatles. Damn it. They did it again. <laughs> <laughs> but 1955 and 1965, she's the height of her career. And she'll just never, unfortunately, reach that again. In 1960s, uh, she's still putting out. I'm sorry, 1970s, she's still putting out albums, but unfortunately she's now dealing with a heroin addiction and that just wrecks her financial situation. She also has legal issues from it, a couple of arrests, some small amount of jail time. Dang. And she she would carry like a drug addiction of some sort pretty much until her 50s. Wow. I mean, knowing her past, it's not a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. And it's, you know, especially like during, I feel like the sixties, and this is probably a little bit of a psychoanalysis at this point, but like when you do have trauma, so many people were led into drugs and not, you know, therapy, not, not <laughs> therapy and talking through their issues. Cause it's such a stigma. Yep. So unfortunately we had so many, I mean, musicians are so good at channeling their experiences and emotions there has to be a cost to it almost. It's either you deal with it and talk with it or you find other ways of dealing with it, other coping mechanisms. So it's always sad when you hear those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, it's just so prevalent in music, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, as the later years of her career, uh, she kept performing like pretty much till the end. And this is where I see a lot of similarities between Etta and Mavis because Etta's story is definitely perseverance. She -hmm. just kept performing. And along the way, she would just inspire people. More artists would talk about her. More people would look into her. And then right around like 1995, she wins her first Grammy. Oh, amazing. It took that long? It took that long. That's crazy. I mean, we can discuss this all day. But on She Rocky, there's a continuing conversation that the Grammys don't know shit. Oh, but yeah. no, the Grammys are pointless. Yeah, the Grammys are absolutely pointless. But she would like throughout her lifetime win six Grammys, and I think one of those was a lifetime achievement award. So they definitely were. I think the Grammys sometimes is like, oh shit, we were cool with you all the time, and then just start giving award after award. But I'm glad she ha- has them. As far as for her legacy, I mean, she's just known for her energy on stage. Like she was always dancing. It didn't matter like how she was feeling. She always had this great energy. She's also known for her bold personality. She wanted to get things done, which is just inspiring in and of itself. One of my favorite quotes from research was from her manager of 30 years. He said, um, Etta James is unmanageable and I'm the closest thing she's ever had to a manager. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. In 2008, a movie called Cadillac Records came out. 
which was about chess trackers and the great Beyonce played Etta James. In late 2000, that's when she started developing health issues, including dementia and leukemia. And unfortunately, in 2011, she would sadly pass away shortly after her 29th and final album, Dreamer. Damn. 29 albums. She kept going until the end. And she she would go on to like inspire like tons of artists. So like Beyonce, Christina Aguilera, our alto lord and savior, Adele. (laughs) But, you know, she just has such an influence in blues and in soul and in jazz. And I'm going to end with a quote from Adele. It's paraphrased a little bit, but it just shows like the significance Etta James carved. And this quote is in relation to also Aretha Franklin carving that way for Adele. But it says, quote, if you look up the word singer in a dictionary, you will see their names. Uh, That's so good. Yeah. And that's Etta James. It's so true. She has one of the most iconic voices to me. Like the minute she starts a note, like, you Mm -hmm. know, it's her. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. There's so many songs where she does that, where she just belts out something immediately and you're like, yep, got it. Mm-hmm. And it. the way that she like, especially in that last, it's like this slow into it. And it's just, it, she draws you in with her voice. Mm-hmm. <sighs> absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't know anything about her past or anything. Like, my goodness, she really yeah. went a lot. Yeah. She went through a ton, but she kept going to the end. There's, yeah. It's just really always really incredible when you see an artist that just continues to persevere no matter if they have social issues or personal issues you know they just keep going yeah Mm -hmm. well my person I'm gonna talk about is Betty Davis and this is interesting because she's kind of the next generation on from these two and there I feel are similarities but there's also they're very much all pioneers in what they were doing, but I'll get into it and we can discuss. Betty Davis was born Betty Mabry on July 26, 1945, and she grew up in Durham, North Carolina, before her family moved to Pittsburgh when she was around 12 years old. When she was 17, she ended up moving to New York City, and she lived with her aunt, and she went there to study at the Fashion Institute of Technology. So over the next few years, she worked as a model. She was with the Wilhelmina models, and she also worked as a club manager to support herself. Even though Betty was there studying fashion, music was always a significant passion for her. Growing up, her parents really nurtured that as well. She was a huge fan of the blues. She loved musicians like B.B. King, Elmore James, Big Mama Thornton, Muddy Mm. Waters, all the greats. When she was 12 years old, she wrote her first song, which was called Bake a Cake of Love. (laughs) It's cute, right? (laughs) So when she moved to New York City, she had already been writing music and everything. And it was only natural since it was the early 60s that she tended to gravitate toward the Greenwich Village folk scene of that time. So she really became immersed in that scene. She knew everyone, Bob Dylan, all of them, right? She began 
making demos. She was writing hits for other people. One of the songs that she wrote was one called Uptown for a group called the Chambers Brothers, Mm -hmm. the hit for them. She was also meeting tons of talented musicians and also dating a few as well. This is unfortunate. I'm going to bring it up and then we're going to move on. She dated Eric Clapton for a time. Okay, that's that. (laughs) (laughs) She also dated a jazz composer named Hugh Masekela. And he became her boyfriend and her first real musical collaborator. And in 1968, with him doing the arrangements, she recorded several songs. Let's just go back to 1966 for a minute. Betty meets Miles Davis. He was married. It wasn't until two years later in 1968 did Betty and Miles cross paths again and their relationship flourished in a different way. So Miles was 42 years old, which made him 19 years older than Betty at the time. She was 23. Mm. Oh, yeah. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Know, right. <laughs> but you can see what drew Miles to Betty. She was really the ultimate muse for him. She was young. She knew all of the hip fashion, all of the hip music, all of the hip people. Mm-hmm. She opened up his world. Because again, yeah, at 42, he was kind of, you know, part of a different scene that wasn't the vibrant young scene of the time. Mm -hmm. Miles wrote an autobiography and in it, he fully credits her for expanding his world, music included. Betty actually introduced him to musicians like Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone, Mm. both of whom she was personal friends with as well. So she really ushered Miles into this new stage of music. And if you listen to his records before Bitches Brew, and then you listen to that record, you can really see the difference. It's very obvious, uh, her impact on that. She was also on the cover of his 1969 album, Fill the Kilimanjaro. And there's a song on it called Mademoiselle Mabry, which was her last name, but not for long. Because after dating for a very brief period of time, the two got married. Betty was still focused on music, and thankfully, Miles was very supportive of that. In 1969, he produced a couple sessions for her, and he really tried to help her score a record deal. Unfortunately, though, at the time, no label wanted to release them, and those sessions ended up getting shelved at Columbia Records, and they were only finally released in 2016. Wow. Um, Yeah. So they did nothing for her career at the time, unfortunately. Also, after only one year of marriage, Betty and Miles divorce. This is a good thing, though, because the connection was there, but Miles had a violent temper. Mm, Can't have that. Yeah. Very abusive. So thankfully, she got out of that before, you know, something even worse happened. I have a quote from Betty. She says, his genius gave and took from me. Every day married to him was a day I earned the name Davis. Mm. Mm. In Miles' autobiography, he wrote that Betty was, and I'm quoting, a free spirit, talented as a motherfucker, but she was too young and too wild, which are two things I imagine were things that drew him to her in the first place. But once, you know, once you're, 
the wife. You really mm-hmm. can't, can't have that. Yeah. You can't have your cake and eat it too, sir. Exactly. Exactly. He also ended up accusing her of having an affair with Jimi Hendrix. He actually is the one that filed for divorce with wow. citing, citing that. Yeah. Jeez. She completely denies the affair and she says, I was so angry with Miles when he wrote that. It was disrespectful to Jimmy and me. Miles and I broke up because of his violent temper. Mm. So Betty needed a new change of scenery. She got out of there. She decided to move to London for a year. She went there. She modeled. She wrote music. When she decided to return to the States, it was actually because she was offered a gig recording songs with Santana. Mm. Yeah. So random. Right? So random. (laughs) But instead, she had been writing and doing her own thing. So she came back. She wrote, arranged, and recorded her own songs. Good for her. Right? Such a badass. And she learned a lot, again, from Miles. And he still, even though they were separated, was like very supportive and was like, you got this, like you can do it on your own, like do your thing. Mm -hmm. So she finally releases her first album. It was simply titled Betty Davis and it was released in 1973. Then in 1974, she releases her second. It's called They Say I'm Different. And in 1975, she signs to Island Records and releases Nasty Gal. At the time, she was dating Robert Palmer, you know, Simply Irresistible, Mm -hmm. Addicted to Love. And he helped her score that deal with Island Records. And those last two albums, she actually produced all by herself. So, Oh, awesome. Such a badass. Love it. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about Betty's music. She is one of the most badass musicians ever, 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 ever. So remember, again, we're coming out of the 60s. We're coming out of like Mavis Staples, gossip, sorry, gospel. <laughs> it's also gossip. Trust yeah. Me. <laughs> I was in the church for 23 years. <laughs> yeah, lots of gossip. Lots of gossip there. But yeah, and like Etta James and the Supremes and the Ronettes. So like there is this sort of way that a female singer was supposed to be. Then Betty comes on the scene and just shocks the hell out of everyone. So her music is like super raw, super funky, sexy as hell. She was really, really pushing the limits lyrically. Like, let me tell you some of the song titles. We got, if I'm in luck, I just might get picked up. Mm. He was a big freak. Mm. Your mama want you back. Mm. (laughs) Don't call her no tramp talking trash shut off the light the opening line to a big freak is i used to beat him with a turquoise chain (laughs) like this is the kind of content she's putting out there i love it unbelievably sexy just throwing it all out on the stage so to not only have a woman but this incredible gorgeous black woman owning her sexuality and like yeah in people's faces I love it. It was mind-blowing. She just threw away the idea of what a woman was supposed to be in that time. Man. She was a feminist without even, I think, realizing she was a Mm -hmm. feminist, you know? She just refused to fit the mold. This is, of course, what made her fabulous, but also made her a hard sell. None of her albums were a commercial success. She did have a couple minor hits, though. And, of course, she had greater success in Europe, 
but in the US, she was barred from performing on TV. She was often not played on the radio because of the content. She actually would tour and have like the NAACP and religious groups after her when she tried to play shows. Yeah, like people went crazy over her content. Leah, why are we like this? (sighs) Right? Why are we like this? America does not deserve nice things. (laughs) No, we don't. And yeah, anytime a woman's out there just owning herself in any way, it's like, what's going on? We can't do this. So unfortunately, it definitely took a toll on her career. <laughs> Things have not changed. No. Nope. Not Which is one so frustrating. Bit. I have a quote from Betty. She says, I wrote and sung my heart out. Three albums of hard funk. I put everything there. The doors in the industry kept closing, always white men behind desks telling me to change, change my look, change my sound, change your music, Betty. I need to fit in or else no contract, no silver dollar. I learned that stars starve in silence. Mm. I found myself alone. Wow. She did record one more album for Island Records, but she refused to, to tone down her music for the powers that be. And again, they ended up shelving the album. So frustrating. I think those songs have been released um, on a bootleg in the 90s, though. But again, not in the 70s, not in the 80s. So after putting her heart and soul out there, trying to do her, just wanting to put her music out in the world, it just wasn't happening again. Like doors kept closing everywhere she looked. It was just like another hill, uphill battle. And by the early 80s, she just disappears. She disappears from music, from the scene, all the people that knew her. The business side just took such a toll. And not only that, her father, who she was extremely close to, he ended up passing away and she was just absolutely devastated by this. So she became a total recluse after that for literally decades. Jeez. Yeah never released any music, would never do any sort of interviews. She fully disappears. Then a couple years back, a man named Philip Cox decided to look her up and he wanted to kind of make a documentary on her and see like where she is now. So he goes on a hunt for her. Thankfully, he finds her. And together they make this amazing documentary. It's called Betty. They say I'm different. I highly recommend watching it. She tells her story in her words, and it features some of the only known concert footage of her, which is like so cool to watch. Like, oh my God, what a badass. So that was released in 2017. And it seems like that was actually a positive for Betty. And it kind of brought her back into music a bit because since then she's been writing. Good. Right? After like so long... And I think finally realizing like people are still listening and people love her. She's Mm -hmm. got back into it. She released her first song in 2019 in over 40 years. It's called A Little Bit Hot Tonight. Um, She doesn't sing it. Danielle Maggio performs it, but Betty wrote it. When asked about her career, I have a final little quote here. She said, 
I look back on those records, not so much as if they were a reflection of myself, but more a representation of a time period. It feels good to be getting recognition, but in the end, the only advice I have is to be true to your art form. And by that, I mean, do what's in your heart more so than what's in your head. Mm. So I'm glad she doesn't you know, regret her decisions, but it's just in the documentary, I can't remember who it was that said it, but someone's talks about how she was a pioneer and she really sacrificed herself in mm. order for everyone after her to do what they were doing because of course yeah. being the first like sexually explicit woman in funk of course the doors are going to be like closing and people are going to be freaking out and everything and she sacrificed herself and her music and everything, but she wouldn't budge. Like she wasn't going to tone it down for any, any man telling her what to do. Mm. And those albums are so good. The songs are like, oh, they're sexy and funky and raw. And the lyrics are just crazy. Like I, if people haven't listened to her, I highly, highly recommend checking out those albums. Cause they're just so much fun. Yeah. Damn, Link, you know how to choose the artists because every time we do these, I'm just like, you'll talk about one. I'm like, I've never heard of this person. I love this person. Now I'm obsessed <laughs> with them. Yeah. Like, and I That's see why we being do added this. to that list. Yes. Yeah. No, check her out. You'll love her. And Betty, they say I'm different is the documentary. And I think in America, in Canada, it's on Prime right now. So mm-hmm. if anyone's listening and has that, check it out. And all of her music is on Spotify. And I listen to those. She's like one of those people I put on, you know, when like you're getting ready for a night out and you're like, I want to feel like powerful and sexy and like, I'm a badass. Like I put on her and I transform into that character and I'm like ready to go. It is also on Prime in the US. Can confirm. Amazing. Yeah. And she was so beautiful and and again, it's just so cool that she not only inspired so many musicians after her, yeah. but was a muse herself with, you know, Miles and a lot of the other musicians that she got to know in that time period. Yeah. But, you know, you just hate to see, like you were kind of saying, like artists sacrifice themselves because they got to stick to their guns, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, yeah. this is who I am. This is what I write. Yeah. And, you know the recording industry has always been the same as it is today. It's like, if they don't think it's going to make money, then they're not interested. It's always been money instead of talent. Absolutely. And, you know, empowering creativity. And a lot of the times it's the women musicians. It's not the male musicians that get told to tone it down or change your image or. Ain't nobody toning down nobody's toning down 80s hair metal okay like where Biggie six did not have to calm down no. where was that you yeah. know no not only that they're like encouraging them to be even crazier right yep yeah it's, it's wild but yeah thank god these albums are still available and again that we're discussing these women and hopefully Absolutely. helping people discover them that haven't heard of them before because yes my god these women deserve so much more recognition than they got in their time period and now amen absolutely yeah. that was so much fun again like oh, yes i love these episodes right they're the best i want you to remind my listeners what you've been up to lately like what can 
people find if they head over to She Will Rock You right now? We have over 50 episodes now of our biography Taco Bell drive through mm-hmm. versions. Uh, we have like 20 plus artist interviews that you can listen to of up and coming artists ranging from country artists to rock artists to pop artists um, just and just other badass ladies in the music industry. We've interviewed some producers some journalists, like listen to some amazing women talk about what they do. We've got that. Everything's on our website, shewillrockyou.com. Uh, all of our handles are shewillrockyoupodcast. We're not that hard to find. I think that's everything. What have you been up to at Muses? I just want to say I love you guys because you're such a great source of finding new great artists and thank you talking about old artists as well. Like you, you're the perfect combination. Like you can get both there. So thank you. Uh, keep doing that. It's great. Yeah. And what have I been up to? I've been talking to some incredible women lately. I have uh, an episode with Dee Dee Keel that I just put out. Mm. She worked at the Whiskey A Go Go for over a decade, like all through the 70s. And she told me some of her fun kind of backstage stories of musicians. The dream. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Pinning that for later, but continue. I got one with Patty Johnson. She actually, similarly, she worked at the Rainbow for about that same amount of time and again has a million fun stories to tell and um i'm just about to finish or i guess it'll probably come out before this comes out um an episode on grace jones who is another like badass woman of this like she would have been fun to do as part of this episode but she wrote a memoir so i have a whole episode of her coming out soon and uh yeah i'm just balancing both interviews and storytelling as well so it sounds so much fun I love a good bar not bar well whiskey goes bar venue but I love a good backstage story interview uh, yeah. yeah there's nothing better Dee's incredible for that too because this is the second time I've talked to her I have two interviews out there um, that people can listen to and like every time Every time I talk to her, she's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And she'll have a new story about some crazy like rock and roll person. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, what? Like, she's just one of those people who are filled with them. Filled with I them. love it. Yeah. She's um, currently working her way into like writing a book and everything. So hopefully. It's incredible. Yeah. Yes. I want my life to be like that. Oh, I know. Right. I just, <laughs> I live through these women and them telling me their stories. <laughs> One degree off, you know, like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I will make sure to put all of your social media, of course, into the show notes and everything. And um, yeah, we already got a disco plan for the next one. So. Yes. Honestly, that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. If I'm listeners have suggestions on like what disco people you'd want to hear, like, let us know. Yes, please let us know. We have to at least uh, reference John Travolta. And each that should be it's like a six degrees to Kevin Bacon, six <laughs> degrees to John Travolta. That is the challenge okay. for the disco episode. I'm okay, just out there. So get your wiki rabbit holes ready. We and got tra- this. We got this. I mean, that's amazing, that hard, right? No, it, it won't be, be that, that hard. <laughs> Everything's tied to Saturday Night Fever. Has yeah. to be. It has to be. That's like the one disco movie everyone knows. Yeah. Oh man, have you watched it recently? No. It's um does it hold up or no? It's no. got some scenes, man. It's got some scenes. 
Let's, well, well, maybe we watch it and we can have a moment where we talk okay. about that on yes. this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I would love that. All right. Thanks again, you guys. Yes, of thank you course. so much. Always love these chats. Seriously. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by Lynx O'Leary. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery, following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world, in which viruses are gods, and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Redolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.